Would you open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19? Remember, there is no children's church this morning. I'm sure our kids will do a great job in the service. Revelation chapter 19, last book of the Bible. And uh, just a reminder, next Sunday is July 4th. Uh, There's a Hingham Road race that goes along here in front of the church. We are not sure exactly yet what the traffic limitations will be getting in and out of the church. So we may have to have people come through side roads and all that. So be expecting emails, phone calls this week from the church. And if if in doubt, check the church website by the end of the week. But make sure that uh, you know that the path is all clear to get here to the church, and there's not some funky back road you have to take. Uh, so anyway, just be apprised of that. We'll be we'll be informing you all later on this week. Revelation chapter 19. This morning we're studying verses 1 to 10. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We all have our 4th of July traditions. 4th of July is coming. Different of us do different things. Cookouts, family gatherings. Our family's uh, sort of regular rhythm is we go down to Plymouth uh, to my in-law's place. Uh, They have a pool there and from the pool you can see Plymouth Harbor. It's it's not close to where the fireworks are, but from the pool at night you can see the, the fireworks out over the harbor. And so we go there and, you know, have some snacks and the kids like swimming in the pool at night in the dark. And, and of course, as we're watching all this, uh, we have a soundtrack for the fireworks, which is you turn on the radio, you listen to the pops. And because, you know, that's just what you do in Boston. That's, that's sort of the soundtrack of the 4th of July. And, and of course, you know, the, they play all different kinds of music, but the song you're waiting for at the end, you know, that it all builds up to is the 1812 Overture. 
And then the cannons, boom, da 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 da, da boom, you know, and I, you lo- I love that part. It's, you know, I'm not a classical music um, aficionado at all, but uh, even so, sort of uh, lowbrow people like me can appreciate the 1812 overture. And, and just, uh, you know, it evokes such a sense of victory and triumph and finally good triumphing over evil at the end of that song, you know, the the cannons are blasting and the church bells start ringing. Uh, and of course, that comes at the end of the piece. It, it, that, that melody line you know, that's sort of iconic. Da, 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 da. It, it appears at different points in the song, but doesn't really erupt until the end of it. But, but prior to that in the song, you, you know, just sort of listening to the music, it evokes kind of a different feeling. There's a lot of um, tension, anxiety. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, sort of amb- ambiguity to the music before that. You're like, it sounds like a battle. You don't know which side is going to win. And then finally at the end, there's victory. Well, as I was studying Revelation 19 this week, it's, this may sound weird, but, but the 1812 overture was like my own personal mental soundtrack to Revelation 19. Because I feel as we come to chapter 19, as we've studied through all of Revelation so far, we get to chapter 19 and it's kind of like Revelation 19 has finally started going, except instead of boom, it's hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And so from chapter 19 on, it's, it's the final kind of triumphant conclusion to the book. And one by one, we see all of the, the evil enemies falling. The prostitute is brought down. And then next week we'll see the beast and the false prophet are brought down. And then the text after that, Satan is finally brought down. And one by one, God's enemies are crushed. And so that victory march uh, breaks forth. So what is chapter 19 of Revelation? It is, it is a volcanic eruption of worship to God. It is a, a mighty uproar of praise and glory in God's final victory. Revelation 19 catapults us forward. It's kind of an auditory flash forward to the very last day when finally God will bring all of His purposes to completion. Both the destruction of His enemies and the salvation of His people. And what we have in chapter 19 is, is this kind of deafening worship. This, this uh, overwhelming, thunderous wo- roar of exaltation in God and who He is. It's, it's an amazing passage. You know, if, if we could hear this passage, it, it would make us deaf. It's just so mighty and overwhelming with exuberant praise to God. There are two reasons for the praise in Revelation chapter 19. There are two major sources or motivations that are fueling this, uh, this uh, eruption of praise. Uh, the first one is in verses 1 to 5. The second reason is in verses 6 to 9. So let's look at the first one first. What is, what is the first reason that the saints in heaven are bursting forth in song and glory? And the first reason is because the prostitute, Babylon, the world system that has persecuted God's people, is finally destroyed and judged. So the first reason they praise God is because of God's judgment on the world. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. So here's 
the saints in heaven. These are all of God's people. They're the great multitude. We were introduced to them earlier in Revelation chapter 7. And now they're back. And they're praising God on the last day. And notice that they praise Him for His victory in judgment over the world. They say, Hallelujah! By the way, what does Hallelujah mean? Praise the Lord. That's right. It's a Hebrew phrase. Halal is the Hebrew verb for praise. Halalu is a second person plural imperative. So it's, hey, all of you, praise. And then Yah is the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. Except it's kind of his, his nickname, right? It's sort of a shortened version of Yahweh. It's Yah. Hallelujah. So praise Yahweh. Praise the God, uh, the Creator God. Praise the Lord. So it's, it's a command. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are His judgments. Why? He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. So they're praising God because He's finally condemned and judged the prostitute. Now, uh, if you're here for the first time with us Sunday, you may be wondering, why are we talking about a prostitute in church? What is this? This is not really what I expected in church this morning. Uh, well, if, you've, if you have been with us the past couple Sundays, you know exactly what we're talking about. Because in chapter 17 of Revelation, then chapter 18, we've seen this, this figure, uh, sometimes called the prostitute, sometimes called Babylon. And she is sort of a symbol for the world system in which we live in its opposition to God. It's, it's everything in, in this world that seeks to draw people away from the Creator to worship the creation. Uh, the prostitute can be seen in every human culture, whether it's Western democratic cultures or Middle Eastern Islamic cultures or primitive uh, tribal cultures. You know, whatever the culture in human society is, the prostitute is always there seeking to lure people away from Christ, away from the Creator, toward whatever the idols of that culture may be. Whether they're actual idols or whether they're Things like materialism and greed we see in our culture. But whatever manifestation it takes, she is, she's luring people away from God and, and toward the world's pleasures and treasures. Uh, we saw her back in chapter 17 and chapter 18. But now, finally, she comes to her end. Finally, this world is judged. This world system in which we live. And it comes crashing down. And look what the, the saints say in verse 3. Again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Does this, does this strike anyone just as a little odd? You know, you know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, think about what this is saying here. We're going to rejoice and praise God because He brings the world to a fiery conclusion. I mean, you think about that. You know, we're going we're to celebrate and worship God because He brings judgment upon the world. You know, you kind of think about that. You go, I don't know. I mean, if I were to tell you, you know, the world's coming to an end in a, a great cataclysm of God's wrath, uh, I mean, maybe you might want to cry or be afraid or shudder or be filled with anxiety. But the thought that, that our response would be, all right, break out the tambourines. You know, get those horns they blow at the, the World Cup. You know, let's all just let's start partying. Let's have a big worship service because the world is coming to an end. Um, not only that, but, but if I could sort of even put a finer point on it, it's not just that the world in some abstract sense is coming under God's judgment, but what that means is 
the inhabitants of the world who have rejected Christ, the, the people of the world who have gone and embraced the, the prostitute and whatever she has to offer instead of Christ are coming under God's judgment. And that we're going to see that someday at the end and rejoice. It's like, how can that be? I mean, turn back to Revelation chapter 14. Wouldn't it fill us with sadness and with grief? People that we love and we're trying to reach with the Gospel to see their final demise. Look at Revelation 14, verse 8. It says, A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That's the prostitute. Uh, with, uh, which made all the nations drunk uh, with the maddening wine of her adulteries. So, there's the prostitute falling. But it's not just the prostitute. It's also all the people who've participated in it. And especially those who've worshipped the, the Antichrist that she supports. It says in verse 9, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And here we go, the same phrase. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. So it's not just the world is judged in some sort of general way, but God will judge the people of the world who've rejected Christ. And yet we're going to see that someday and rejoice. Someday, somehow God's people will stand on the shore of hell and behold God's furious anger poured out on those who've turned against Him time after time. And we're going to say, praise the Lord. I mean, it's... It's a rather difficult image. So how can it be? You know, is it like we suddenly get to heaven and we all turn into sadists? We get to heaven and we all become kind of monsters who enjoy the misery of others? Is that what's going on? I don't think so. If you look back at chapter, at our text in chapter 19, I think the reason the saints are rejoicing, even in judgment, is that God's judgment reveals... His glory and majesty. In other words, what the saints are focused on in heaven, what we'll be focused on someday at the last day, isn't, the, isn't misery or anything like that. It will be that our focus is exclusively on the glory of God. That we will finally be set free to savor God to the fullest. And whatever rebounds to His glory will add to our praise and enjoyment of Him. Even terrifying things like judgment. You know, again, look at the text. Notice the focus on God. Chapter 19, verse 1. It starts out what? Hallelujah. We're, we're praising God for who He is. And then the next line. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So observing the judgment of the world will cause us in heaven to look back at God and say, look what God has. Salvation is God's. The salvation belongs to Him. You know, we... It's not, we don't save ourselves. We're not saved by our own righteousness. And when we see the world judged that trusted in its own righteousness instead of in Christ, it will be clear. Salvation belongs to God, not to us. We don't save ourselves. Glory belongs to God. When we see the glory, the idolatrous self-worship of this world in flames, we'll recognize, ah, glory belongs to God. The power belongs to God. I don't know if you've ever seen um, TV shows of uh, tornadoes. I don't know why. My wife and I, 
whenever we see tornado shows, it's like Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. I mean, just, you have to watch it. And when you, see, when you see a tornado thing, you have to watch it. It's just amazing the power of a tornado. And even though it's, it's a destructive force, still you stand in awe of the power. And so on that judgment day, as terrifying as it is, it will remind us of God's great power. And we'll praise Him, not because we like seeing things destroyed, but because of, of His great power displayed in His judgment. Or perhaps even uh, more to the point in this text, it's that His justice will be revealed. Verse 2, For true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute. On that day, we'll finally see this world for what it is. We'll finally see how great God is and how evil sin is. And on that day, we'll finally rejoice to see God's justice vindicated. I mean, if this world just went on and on and on, and sin just kept piling up in this world ad infinitum, on and on and on, and the world just went as on and on as it does, and God's people were forever put down, at some point you'd have to say, okay, time out. God, are you just? Do you care about what's right at all? And so finally, there will come a day when God will say, enough! And God's people will say, yes! Finally, justice. Finally, righteousness is upheld in God's universe. And so, we'll praise God for His justice. So I think that's what we're praising God in heaven is that we're consumed with a love for His glory. And His glory is seen in judgment. Um, Jonathan Edwards, the famous 18th century New England preacher who was part of the Great Awakening in the colonies uh, in the 1740s, he wrote a little treatise on actually on Revelation 18.20, which says rejoice because Babylon has fallen. And he was wrestling with the idea, why would we rejoice at seeing God's judgment? So he wrote this little treatise entitled, you've got to love these old titles, The End of the Wicked Contemplated by the Righteous. Uh, in other words, you know, what, what will the final judgment day look like to the eyes of those who are saved by Christ's grace? And then he has a subtitle. The subtitles are the best. The torments, the torments of the wicked in hell are no occasion of grief to the saints in heaven. Think about that. The torments of the wicked in hell are no occasion of grief to the saints in heaven. You go, why? Why wouldn't that be a reason to grieve and to be sad? Well, he goes on to argue that, that first of all, the reason we won't be sad at hell when we're in heaven is not because we enjoy the misery of others. He makes that point. He says negatively, it will not be because the saints in heaven are the subjects of any ill disposition. Then he goes on to say, it will not be because they delight in seeing the misery of others absolutely considered. So it won't be because we get our jollies from people being tormented. You know, it's not some sick kind of thing. Rather, why will we rejoice in heaven, even at God's judgment? He says, it will be our rejoicing in heaven will be an occasion of their rejoicing because the glory of God will appear in it. Then he goes on to explain it this way. The saints in heaven will be perfect in their love to God. I, I can't wait till my love for God is perfect. Don't you get so frustrated at how lame your love for God is? My, my love for God is so weak and pathetic and fickle and temperamental and 
selfish. I mean, just my best days of love for God are just like little glimpse of love for God, and then it's like it goes away, and I'm back to being in love of myself. You know, even as a Christian, my love for God is just so anemic and and half-hearted. I just long for that day when I'll finally love God the way I want to love Him in my best moments. I, I like this line. Their hearts will be a flame of love to God. And therefore, they will greatly value the glory of God and will exceedingly delight in seeing Him glorified. The saints highly value the glory of God here in this life, but how much more will they do so in the world to come? They will therefore greatly rejoice in all that contributes to that glory, even judgment. And then here's this final sentence. This one really got me. Get this. The glory of God will in their esteem be of greater consequence than the welfare of thousands and millions of souls. The glory of God will in their esteem be of greater consequence than the welfare of thousands and millions of souls. I think the reason why I struggle with the idea of God's judgment on this world at times, because quite frankly, we love this world more than we love God. That I treasure my sins more than I treasure Jesus. That I really am more wowed by this world than I am wowed by the glory of God. And that I even put more value on people and their rights and their happiness than I do on God's rights and His glory. And so that's why I just see things the wrong way. But on that day, we will finally be set free from such uh, sinful vision distortions. We will see the value and glory of God and we'll see the wickedness of humanity and we will rejoice and we'll praise God. Even in the horrors of judgment, we will see it reflecting His glory and that will be our greatest treasure and our greatest happiness. I mean, what is the essence of sin if not a devaluation of the glory of God? A putting of other things above His glory, of substituting a lesser for the greater. But on that day, we'll see things aright and we'll praise Him. So brothers and sisters, we need to praise the Lord. We need to get our values right. (laughs) And so we gather here to praise Him, to get our hearts ready for heaven. Because that's what we're going to do. Look at verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. The smallest little kid here, praise the Lord. The oldest saint here, praise the Lord. The person who's been a Christian for 50 years needs to praise the Lord. And the person here who became a Christian last week needs to praise the Lord. We need to praise Him. And it's through praising God that we get our hearts treasuring the value of Christ and the allure of this world just it starts to wither and fade away. The main purpose of our church is to praise the Lord. Do you know our church's primary mission is not evangelism? That's our church's second mission. That's our secondary mission. Our primary mission is to worship the Lord. The reason we do evangelism is because more people need to join us in worshiping the Lord. But someday, evangelism and missions will cease. 
We're primarily called to praise God. You know, take out your bulletin for a minute. You guys get one of these bulletins when you came in? Of course you did. Look at the front. We have our mission statement on the front. You know, our church has a mission statement. It helps us just really focus on what we're called to do as a church. Let's just read this mission statement together. South Shore Baptist Church exists to glorify God by worshiping Him and by making disciples for Christ from the people of the South Shore and beyond. So we exist to glorify God by doing two things. One, worshiping Him. Number two, making disciples. If you take your finger and put it over the bottom three lines, that's going to be our mission statement in heaven. Because in heaven, you don't need to make any more disciples. It's done. So the making disciples part is temporary. Worshiping is eternal. We're here to make disciples so that God's worship may increase. The reason we make disciples is because the worship isn't loud enough yet. We need more praise and more glory to God so that His praise may, may be complete and His glory may be complete. Evangelism and missions is a means to an end, but the end is the worship of God Himself. And that's what we'll do forever and ever. So people, we've got to praise the Lord. If you came in here today discouraged, depressed, full of anxiety... You need to praise the Lord. And, and let the praise of God lift you up and get your eyes on Christ. If you came in here today uh, fearful and dreading and maybe you got bad news this week or you've been looking for a job or whatever it is, you've got to praise the Lord. If your heart is full of bitterness, if there's someone who has hurt you and you just can't figure out how to forgive that person, you've got to praise the Lord. Praise Him for the grace He's shown you. And as you become enamored with Christ, He'll give you the grace to forgive. But praise the Lord. If you're fighting against sin, you just, there's a sin in your life or, or, or attitudes or things you just cannot seem to get over, how do you get past that? Praise the Lord. Let your heart be filled up with worship. And the more I treasure Christ, the more sickly and diseased and gross the prostitute's going to seem. I'm not going to want to go there because Christ will be my treasure. So we need to praise God. That's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. I was even thinking of our building project. I was telling people this in the uh, 8.30 service. You know, we're breaking ground July 18th on the building. We moved it back to the... So it's the 18th now. We're going to break ground. It's going to be really exciting. But, you know, we've been on this building process for a long time. When we first contemplated adding on the facility, what we were going to build was a multi-purpose gymnasium. And our logic was we want to outreach into the community, which is great. You know, we should be about evangelism and outreach. But what happened was that building project, I'm telling you, it just hit a dead end with the town. And so we were kind of like, what are we supposed to do? So we kept praying, kept seeking God. And through that seeking God process, our vision changed. And we said, you know, what we really need to build is a sanctuary for the praise and worship of God. Because during that time of not outreaching through a building, through a gym, the church was growing. So like, okay, it's growing. Why is it growing? What are we being drawn toward? We're being drawn toward His Word, toward the worship of Christ, toward praising Him. And then as we praise Him and worship Him, we then go out on our own into the community. And, and we all are little lights out on the South Shore. And so, so that's how our vision changed. And I really think our building project has, in some ways, been a, a kind of physical story of how our, our growth as a church and our understanding of our mission has been. 
that our primary job is to praise Him. So we're building a sanctuary now. And God's opening the doors one after the other. It's been really amazing to watch. But His glory needs to be at the center. And, and His worship is the center. So praise God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We need to praise Him more. Because someday He's going to judge the world. That should cause us praise. But let's just quickly look at verses 6-9. to nine. What's the second reason we're supposed to praise Him? It's because of His salvation. So we're going to praise Him on that day because of His judgment. And we're going to praise Him for His salvation. And specifically, His salvation is portrayed here as the wedding between the Lamb and the Bride. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, the roar of rushing waters and like the peals of thunder shouting. So again, this description of the saints in heaven roaring and shouting. And what do they say once again? Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him the glory. There's the call to praise again. But why? For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. So that day we'll see the downfall of the prostitute and the rise of the bride. The prostitute's going down, the bride is going up. The day of execution for the prostitute is the day of wedding for the bride. And who is the bride of Christ? It's us. It's His people. Look down at verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So it's the the saints. It's God's saved people. The people God's had mercy upon. Both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of God's people down through the ages finally praising Him and we're the bride of Christ. So everything will be reversed on that day. You know, in this world, in this world, the prostitute is up and the bride is down. In this world, the prostitute is cool. The prostitute is legit. The prostitute has the power. The bride looks silly and foolish. And as we studied, the prostitute loves to kill the bride. But on that day, it will all be flipped. In this world... Uh, you know, the, the prostitute looks at the bride and says, what is wrong with you? You know, the prostitute says, let's, let's worship all kinds of gods. And the bride says, no, I'm going to be faithful to the groom. And so in the time of Rome, it was like, you won't worship Caesar? You won't worship all the other gods? You only worship this Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified? Are you kidding me? Come on, broaden your horizons. Be a part of society. Don't just worship this one groom. And today, we said, no, 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 we're just worshiping Jesus. He's the Savior. He shed His blood for us. And, and the prostitute in the world says, are you kidding me? How narrow, how intolerant, how closed-minded. Don't you know there are many ways to God? Don't you know we can all make our own spirituality that works for us? That's the, that's the prostitute message. Whatever works, whoever works. But, but Christ is the Savior. He shed His blood for the church. Muhammad did not shed his blood for the church. Buddha did not die and rise again. You know, Christ is the Savior. He's the only one with the empty grave. He's the groom. And so the church is a faithful bride. And it says, no, we, we can't go to all the prostitutes. We have to stick to the groom, to Christ. And she's ridiculed. Just like Cinderella gets locked in the attic by the nasty, pernicious stepsisters and the villainous stepmother. So the bride suffers disgrace in this world from the prostitute. But on that day, it's all going to be flipped. 
The prostitute's going down, the bride is going up, and so we're going to rejoice. And look how it's described. You know, what's the main metaphor in these verses for our salvation? You can describe salvation a lot of ways. Here it's described as what? A wedding. You know? Word association. I say wedding, what do you think of? Parties, joy, cake, music, family, people getting together and pretending that they like each other, um, you know. (laughs) Right? It's joyous. A wedding, you know. The reception afterwards, dancing, people hugging and kissing. I mean, it's, it's the wedding, right? In, Jewish, in, uh, in Judaism in, in the first century, the wedding uh, fest, feast actually lasted a week. So seven days. How long is it going to last in heaven? It just goes on forever. It's a wedding. It's a party. It's all these associations of joy, of festivity, of, of eating and drinking and dancing and, and just music and, and revelry at the wedding feast. But you know, the best part about the wedding is the bride and the groom finally, finally being together, you know, finally standing there as a couple. When, when I was thinking about my own wedding, you know, I have all these great memories. I got my wedding album. I can look back and see all the different things, you know, all the, 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 the reception afterwards and all the people, and it was great. But you know, my favorite memory of my wedding was just seeing my bride's face as we took our vows. I mean, I can still recall just... You know, a lot of times people are sad and they blubber through their vows and stuff. My bride, man, she was just shining with happiness. She was just, she was just happy. It was like pure happy. And, and we stood and we gave our vows to each other. Actually, right here on this stage, I was like right here. And she was there, right there. And we, you know, I just held her hands and she was just so happy just seeing her face. I'll tell you, when we get the, we get move the sanctuary, I need some carpenter guy to cut out <laughs> this. I want this piece of wood here. You know, it's like I was married right here. I preached a lot of sermons on these pieces of wood. So maybe someone could like give that to me as a present. Just like this. <laughs> I don't know where I put it. I just want this piece of wood uh, for my house somewhere. What's it going to be like someday when we finally get to see the face of the groom. We finally get to see Him. The Lamb. You know, the Lamb who who called us, who wooed us, who, who rescued us from the brothel of sin where we had ruined our lives, who through His blood cleansed us from our impurities to make us a spotless bride. The Lamb who has been faithful to us all these years through ups and downs and trials and tribulations. The Lamb who has carried us on His back to finally see Him face to face. That's the day we're looking for. That's the wedding. And of course, you've got to have the right clothes, verse 8. You can't come to a wedding dressed in your flip-flops and your shorts. Got to have wedding clothes on or they're not going to let you in. Fine linen, verse 8, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Not the robes of the prostitute, but the robes and the garments of the bride. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. 
Now, quick theological question. Is that saying, therefore, that the way you get into the feast, the way you, you become part of the bride, is by living a good life and by living a righteous life? Not exactly. No. I mean, we're not saved by our good deeds. That's the, that's the common idea in our culture. You ask the average person, if there is a heaven, how do you get there? And the average person says, well, you live a good life. You live a, you live a pure life. And actually, there's some truth in that. If you could live a perfectly pure and holy life, you actually could get to heaven on your own. The problem is, <laughs> no one does. Even my best deeds are tainted. Even like the greatest gem of my, my good accomplishments that I can hold forward is tainted by selfishness. I, you, know, you know the scales between like my good deeds and my bad deeds? The problem is, I've got nothing in the good deeds scale. I've got no pure good deed and everything is in the other scale. And, and so none of us can be rescued by our deeds. And yet it says here that, that our garments at the wedding are, are righteous acts. I, you know, think about it this way. In Revelation, garments are always an outward symbol of our inward identity. So, so the garments just show the spiritual identity of the one wearing them. That's how garments are used symbolically in Revelation. So, so it's, it's not that we're saved by our good deeds, but our good deeds reveal our identity that we belong to Christ through grace and through faith in Him. Um, you know, put a, put a wedding dress on a woman. Is she a bride? I don't know. Does she have a relationship with a groom? <laughs> Is she going to be married? So it's not just having the dress, but the, the dress, the, the garments identify us as the bride of Christ. It identifies who we really are. So that on that wedding day, we know who we are. So, so brothers and sisters, let's stay faithful to Jesus. There's a wedding day coming. We need to be ready. You should know ahead of time, word of warning, bridal garments for the wedding day of Christ are not in vogue in this world. You will look like a fashion train wreck from the world's perspective if you dress like the bride of Christ in this world. You will not be admired for dressing like the bride of Christ. Just know that ahead of time. You know, the prostitute dresses like this and, and the bride dresses like that and they don't look the same. You're not going to be liked. You will never in this world get praise from the world for being faithful to Jesus. You will never receive the American Medical Medal of Freedom. Kids, you will not get any award in school. Uh, you're not going to get a promotion at work because you've been faithful to Jesus. That's just not what the world promotes. So know that. Know that if you're going to follow the bride in this life, you'll probably be rejected just as the groom was rejected. And so to follow Christ means to wear a kind of clothing that doesn't fit with the world system. But you know what? Who cares? We're going to the wedding. Who cares? This world's going down. The bride is going up. So walk faithfully with Christ in this world. Verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. My closing question. Are you going to the wedding? Have you been, in, you've been invited? Are you coming? Are you, are you trusting in Christ? Maybe you say, I, I could never get there. I, I'm too imperfect. I have too many questions. I've made too many mistakes. The blood of Jesus can wash away all our sins. It's through Christ's blood that, that we can be made pure and dressed in His righteousness to be ready for the wedding. So do you have Christ? Are you going to the wedding? It is the party to end all parties. It is the only place to be on that day. 
So put your faith in Christ. His arms are wide open to you. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, that you are coming again to judge and to save. Lord Jesus, purify our hearts so that we treasure you above all else. Lord, increase the volume of prayer at South, of praise at South Shore Baptist Church. Lord, increase the volume of praise on the South Shore. God, give us a passion for evangelism that is driven by a deeper passion for your glory. May we do evangelism ultimately because we love your glory, Lord. God, may we uh, just be filled up with love for you. God, give us courage to wear the bridal garments no matter what the world may say about our fashion. And God, I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, Jesus, that, that even today your voice would speak into their hearts and invite them to the supper. And that, Lord, they would, they would put their faith in you and know that you can forgive their sins. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Come now to the communion table. We call it the Lord's Supper. This is a...